Welcome back to another episode of MJ's Progress Not Perfection. Today's guest is Franklin. Franklin and I went to high school together, and, you know, we knew each other, but we didn't know each other, if that makes sense. Um, we'll really get into that. And we talk for, you know, a good amount of time. We go over a lot of things from past traumas with an S, because there are a few of them for him, um, even in addiction and out of addiction. So, you know, it's a long one, so strap in. We'll get right into Welcome it. Welcome to the show, Franklin. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, well, no, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, it's very interesting that you're doing this. Uh, I would never have guessed that you sort of had the same struggles that, you know, I had and that other people had. I would never have guessed. Ever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, like Franklin and I went to school together. I was a couple of years. Did you graduate in 07? I graduated in 07. When did you graduate? 05. 05. Okay. So you graduated with my brother. Yeah. Yep. He had a mullet. Yeah, yeah I, I remember. Yeah. yeah. I remember now. Yep. Yeah. But, but yeah, I was a drinker then. And then, you know, like everybody, you know, drinking stopped working. And then I went to pills, you know, simple yeah. as that. And so by the time I was 22, I was doing pills every day. Yeah. See, I was the opposite. Like, I did not drink. My my, my parents drank. Um. And actually, my, my dad is 13 years sober uh, from drinking. Actually, four, 14 or 15 years sober from drinking. He just stopped drinking. Um, my now departed stepmother, she was like, you know, you got to stop drinking. Like, I, I can't deal with it. Because he was a nighttime drinker. Like, he was one of those drinkers that would only drink at a certain time. And it was until he passed out. And it didn't matter if it was a box of wine, bottle of gin, whatever. Like, that was his thing. And, you know, my, my mother enjoyed like her uh, wine spritzers, whatever. But uh, no, she's been my, my mom has stopped. She stopped drinking about two years ago and um, I never drank. I was a one beer queer, the definition of a one beer queer. Well, my, I mean, you're, you know, you're a tiny guy. You're a small guy. So I'm not even that surprised that like, you know, your body wouldn't be able to handle it when you were younger. Yeah, maybe for the uh, people at home, I'm six foot three and I maybe weigh like 170 on like my heaviest day. So I am a very, I'm a bean pole of a person. And you uh, weren't always six foot three, though, because, uh, you know, you, when you were in high school, like the last time I, you know, not that I saw you last time I was in high school, but I mean, when I saw you every day, you know, you know, doing moonwalking down the fucking hallway. <laughs> Um, you know, you were probably like five foot something. Like, when did you when did you grow up to six three? I started okay. Yeah. So I, I I was always tall for my age because my my dad's six three, my brother's six one. Like on on my dad's side of the family, we're very tall. Um, I was five feet tall at the start of seventh grade. By the end of seventh grade, I was slightly taller than my older sister, and she was five four. By the end of eighth grade, I was nearing six feet. And then by ninth grade, Miss Gaynor's like, you're sixth grade. Like, I was, you know, I uh, I have stretch marks on my back from my growth spurt when I was uh, in junior high. So junior high, I just shot up. That shows you how so, drunk I was in high school. <laughs> like, Well, real- I mean, I never thought you were drunk. I just always thought you were, like, just bombastic. Like, you were, like, we, we had Spanish together, right? Yep, yeah, Miss Gamble. Yep, Senior Rita Gamble. Spanish one and Spanish two, or just Spanish one? 
Um, I, I thought I, um, yeah, I had Spanish one my sophomore year and Spanish two my junior year, and both with Miss Gamble, and we're and you know, and I, I think yeah, my name was Chewy, in in, in her class, Chewy, that was my oh. name. And I was uh, on hell. No, you were Chewy. Like you were very. No, you would. You just always seemed like. I mean, maybe it's because we lived in New Jersey near Philly, where like everyone has such a loud personality, and like being yeah. loud is not necessarily necessarily like denote like denote you know behavior. It's just it's their personality. We have large. We have large loud families, and that's just what it is. Like I just I I never thought about that at all. Yeah, and actually when and the other thing is too when I went in the sophomore year. And I had just left Paul Six. I went to I went to Catholic school, Paul Six, my freshman year. And I decided last minute, like the end of August, to switch back to public because I, I want to go to public school again. Honestly, the only reason I liked Catholic school was the uniforms because I had to pick what I wanted to wear every day. I liked I liked the uniforms. I just didn't like the people. You know. Right. Yeah, you know, I still wear basically a uniform. I have like a dozen black T-shirts that are solid black, and I wear a black shirt every day. I don't want to have to fucking pick what I'm gonna wear. I just want to want to get up and go. I mean, you were—I used the term bombastic, but like you had like a sort of a booming personality, which I sort of always envied because I was so quiet back then. Like no one now believes that I was a painfully shy kid, which is frustrating as all get up because you know. I know my history and I, and I remember my experiences and no one, you know, it's like, there's no way you're, everyone's like, uh, there's no way you were shy. I'm like, I was painfully shy. I would say the only time you were ever going to like get comfortable, you know, was when you weren't even you and you were imitating Michael Jackson. That was the only time I could ever see, I ever saw you like breaking through like, you know, your um, personality and showing your personality more is when like, you be moonwalking and shit and like dancing and well that 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 is fair that's very fair because when i was young you know i um i wear hearing aids my older brother wears hearing aids and, and so does my older sister so i um when i was born my hearing test they said that uh they said to my parents you your son will never learn how to speak your son will never learn how to sort of communicate orally um get ready for that. Like he'll probably just be, you know, an invalid or, you know, dependent on other people for the rest of his life. So um, I always felt sort of on the outside looking in from birth. Like I, I'm one of four kids and I have a twin sister who's totally hearing. And I had a brother and sister that were mainstreamed at that point, you know, with hearing aids and knowing sign language. But I was completely on the outside of our relationship as siblings and so i never really felt included in anything and i never really understood why and when i finally went to therapy and i was in a therapy session with my mom she's like well you didn't really have a chance because like your siblings would try to play with you and you didn't know how to engage with them they didn't know how to talk to you you didn't know how to communicate with them yet um and so from a very from like inception basically i was an outsider and I didn't know how to sort of like I was always on the outside looking in, trying to figure out how to sort of, you know, uh, break the glass down or like put little cracks in 
and this is before even knowing what being gay was. I was a total outsider, and uh, I figured out, you know, uh, I like to entertain. I like to watch old musicals and uh, everything else. And so I just it the only way that I could be engaged with people was to be entertaining. And right before seventh grade, I was watching a remember back in the day in like 2000, 2001, when Michael Jackson was going to have a new album come out, there were all these marathons of like the best moments of TV, whatever. And I saw a thing of Motown 25 and him moonwalking. And I was like, and I knew who Michael Jackson was. I remember hearing you were not alone on the radio and, you know, knowing that he was very successful, but being like, oh, I, I, I want to do that. And I love to dance. I love to act. And I taught myself to moonwalk, just standing on the edge of a chair and moonwalking and thinking uh, this would be so much fun to figure out how to do. And so I remember I was in seventh grade. I was in Miss Smith's English class and I got a really good grade on test. I moonwalked back to my chair and Eamon just goes, what the fuck was that? And they're just like, dude, that was amazing. How'd you do that? And I mean, it's really not that hard to learn, but I did it. It's it's hard to learn when you're someone like me, but it's easy when you have rhythm and you're someone like you, you know. <laughs> I looked up to you know pop stars at the time. Like I wanted to be the sixth member of NSYNC. I wanted to be the male Britney Spears when I grew up. Like I wanted to be like Janet Jackson, Madonna. Like I I looked up to those sort of people, and I wanted to be sort of that special, if that makes sense. And it was really fun when, you know, uh, I would be walking down a hallway and someone would just go moonwalk and I'd drop, I drop, I would literally drop my school bag, moonwalk down the hallway, you know, down B building. I remember. <laughs> spin around, moonwalk back and then grab my bag and act like nothing happened. Like it was really fun to be a showman um, because that was what made me sort of stand out. And I think, you know, in a weird way, standing out made me kind of untouchable. Like, I got bullied in elementary school, like, back when I lived in Texas. But I never got really bullied in junior high or high school, with the exception of, like, small stuff. But no one really could touch me because why would you why would you mess with this kid? He moonwalks. But yeah, I was so... You moonwalked and, well, and you had a hearing aid. You know what I mean? You, you know... I was a couple years. Obviously, I'm older than you, so like right. you see, you see a kid moonwalking down. You're like, that's just a fun kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not gonna fuck with him. You know, he he doesn't. He's not asking for it. You know, he's not starting yeah. shit. He he's not. You you never start with anybody. You weren't like looking for fights. You were just looking to like make people laugh. You know. Yeah. So and that may you know and you know and you were like you know the wind could have knocked you over. Let's be real. <laughs> like you know you were. Yeah, you know, skinny kids. So. Yeah. Did did, but, I ha- did you already know you were gay at that point? Oh yeah. Oh no. I mean, boys made me nervous way too early. Like the 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 things that you know girls say about boys or boys say about girls. Like oh, you know, there comes a point where they just make you nervous and you don't really know how to be around them. I never knew how to interact with boys. Like I always wanted to play dress up. I always wanted to you know, live in movie musicals. Like, I would reenact, like, The Wizard of Oz and Sleeping Beauty and other movies that I watched. And it was like, what's wrong with that? 
Um, and it was fine. Like I would spin around in my mom's wedding dress and pull at it acting like I was Cinderella and my stepsisters were tearing the dress apart. Like I would do that in Texas in like 1993. (laughs) um, So I always knew that I was different. And so the whole being almost deaf didn't really matter because I kind of, I could communicate that with my siblings. You know, I, my mother did the best she could to educate herself on what it was like to have, you know, impaired children. But um, I didn't know what the whole gay thing was. And then I, I, I was six and I was living in Austin. We were living on Orleans Drive in Austin. And a neighbor who was a friend of my brother's grabbed me by the back of my hair and pushed my head into a mailbox, called me a fag. And, you know, split my forehead open. And I didn't understand what a fag was. I didn't understand what had just happened. But, uh, and I didn't say anything about it for a long time. And it wasn't until, (laughs) this is really bad. My knowing of what being gay was, was there was a Simpsons episode with John Waters, where he plays Herb. Okay. And... Her, uh, Homer wants to like hook Herb up with a uh, uh, a female, and Marsh just goes, "He is a homosexual," and Homer freaks out. And th- I, I was like, "What's that?" And but I knew that I was I, I knew that I was very very different from a very early age, uh, but I didn't know what it was. You didn't know that I didn't know how. Or- I didn't have any, this is the early 90s. This is before, it was a different time. It was a very different time. So I'm not, I'm not mad at anyone. It's just the time that I was born into. Um, But when I tried to figure out, you know, what it actually was that I was feeling, you know, I got a lot of people asking, you know, were you meant to be a girl and you're a boy? You know, it was like, you know, who are you? What are you? And when you're seven or eight, you know, you know, those are not questions you should ask a seven or eight year old. But it was so different because all we saw on TV at the time was, you know, if anything was related to being gay, it was AIDS. Yeah, it, it was, was all it was all fear mongering stuff. It, it was, was something it was very Philadelphia. Tragic. It was like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Exactly. Exactly. And even that, you know, so I didn't really understand why I was being singled out so much. Like I, and I, I, I had a really weird independent streak when I was a kid. Like you could not tell me that I couldn't do something if it didn't seem logical that I should be able to do it. Like my twin sister in second grade, she was allowed to get her ears pierced for her birthday. So I said, well, then I should be allowed to get my ears pierced. Which didn't seem that weird. And they're like, well, this is what girls do, and this is what we let boys do. I'm like, well, we're twins, so you have to treat us equally, so I should be allowed to get my ears pierced. Why can't I cut my hair? Or wh- why can't I grow my hair out? Why can't I sort of, you know, dress how I want to dress? Like, it, it never really... It's really weird. Like, I was so shy and I was so sort of introverted. But at the same time, you could not tell me that I couldn't do something if it didn't make sense why I couldn't do it. And so I started off third grade at a new school, Cunningham Elementary in Texas. And I sat down and this girl, she was right here. She's like, you're in the wrong seat. I'm like, what? She's like, I I think you're in the wrong seat. I was like, 
what do you mean? She's like, Franklin's a boy's name. No one thought that I was a boy. I was so effeminate as a small child that no one thought that I was a boy. And that was sort of my understanding of what being gay was. It was like, no matter what I was, I wasn't like the other boys in my class. I wasn't like the girls in my class. I was an other. I was completely on the outside. And I was, you know, something to be sort of looked at, probed, mocked, you know, chased. You know, I would get chased home from school with uh, kids on bikes throwing rocks, you know, saying, are you a boy or a girl? They would try to sort of like tackle me and like tear down my pants and so, sort of see what was down there just so they could figure it out. Like, I mean, it's hard enough now for trans kids. But back then, we didn't even have the words for what – and it wasn't socially acceptable at all. No, so, like, I just interviewed um, somebody. The episode came out today. Um, mm -hmm. her, na her name is Jill. But she grew up as Jeff until she was 45. Uh -huh. Had married two kids, two daughters, you know, everything. And until, like, 2010, when, like, the internet was really, like, on your phone, you could really, like, search the internet, that's when she was like, oh, transgender? That's a thing? That's what it's called? And she started realizing that, like, that's what I've been trying to escape, you know, for 40 years. Yeah, you know, like, and she and she even went through AA the first time as Jeff at going to men's meetings in the early 2000s while she was still married and had kids. Wow. Yeah. So like and then she ended up spending time in jail as Jill in the men's jail. Wow. Because they didn't give a fucking L.A. And this was like five years ago, five years this ago, she, LA. five years ago in L.A. 2015, she said. She was already Jill, even legally name change and all. And she spent an entire month in jail as Jill. They put her in the gay pod. There's a gay pod that they had in the jail. And yeah, the first like week she was in a holding cell with some skinhead that had like a swastika tattoo. And she's Jewish. Uh, <laughs> and then she got moved to the gay pod. Wow. I will say I was born into the best possible family I could have been born into. You know, um, my mom and dad, they're both, they were both born in 54. So they're both baby boomers, but they were very liberal. My, my mother was sort of raised liberal. Um, her father, my grandpa, he was a big FDR progressive, you know, joined the ACLU after serving world war ii you know just very much like i'm a progressive this is what i believe in and my my father was his political beliefs were reactionary to his parents being so conservative and being from the south and using the n-word like it was no one's business um i was born to the best possible family i mean you know uh they i was never told that i couldn't do anything um, but I was also told because of the time, you know, well, if you do this and people react this way, uh, it's probably more on you than it is on them. Like if, if I came home and something had been done to me, it'd always be, you know, well, what'd you do? But I had a great family. I mean, um, 
I was always allowed to dress up. I was always allowed to be myself at home. At home. It was always at home. You can do whatever you want. But in real life, you have to, you know, dress up a certain way. Especially but that was very... Texas in the 90s. Like, you know... Yeah. I mean, were you... Wait, were you born in Austin? I was born in um, Dallas. And then we moved to Waco when I was two. My father was a teacher. So we, so he followed the teaching job. So we... Um, we lived in Austin from 94 to 2000, 2001. Um, and it was lovely living there because it's a very cosmopolitan place, but it was a very different time. And I don't think people really understand how different it was back yeah. then. Austin's liberal now. Austin's the only pretty much liberal part of Texas now. Um, it, it, yeah. I, li I literally just hung up with a guy that... Um, grew up in El Paso and my dad's from El Paso yeah and he um they probably maybe even drank together um but this guy he grew up in El Paso he's 49 and um but he he lives in Austin now and you know he's like yeah it's the only blue dot in the state and it's the truth that's why you know think about it. all the comedians are moving down there from LA like even liberal yeah. comedians like it is the only like liberal part of Austin now but I don't feel like it was always that way but now it is austin did vote blue last year like if you look at the breakdown austin yeah. voted for biden like it well i mean and it was also a lot smaller when i moved there like and now the population is almost half a million it's probably over half a million when i lived there it was maybe a hundred thousand people so it was a lot smaller and it wasn't as commercial it was it, it felt a lot more like uh not even like philly it just it, it felt like trenton almost oh, like if i was you were gonna say yeah compare like trenton to philly like trenton was a city but it was small um and so there was a lot of misunderstanding there like i mean and i and i never understood why i was so misunderstood and you know, this might be hopping over a couple questions, but I mean, I, I had, you know, I mean, I told you already about what happened, like going home from school and my sister was right there. My twin sister was right there. And like when she would try to protect me or defend me, like they would hold her back while they would like do stuff. Or if I was riding my bike in the park, like, you know, some one kid just sort of grabbed the back of my shirt and threw me up against the tree. It never really made sense why I had to explain myself when I didn't even know who I was. Like, uh, I had grown adults asking why I was behaving the way that I was behaving, when if that had anything to do with my sexuality, I hadn't gone through puberty yet. Like, I should not have had to answer those questions, you know? And that, that was really hard and frustrating for me to be taken to a counselor's office during the school day and being asked, you know, why are you so skinny? Why do you wear your hair long? Why are your ears pierced? Why do you uh, talk the way that you talk? Why do you walk the way that you walk? Like every part of my life before I was 10 years old was heavily scrutinized, not by my family, but by everyone that was around me. And it made no sense to me. Yeah. It made absolutely no sense. And so when I, I got, I'm going to cut, because I'm now I'm curious. Did you did you start drinking at all? Did you ever drink in high school because of it? Um, I didn't drink. I I was a one beer queer. I could not drink. Okay, I could that, not. 
Okay, so you didn't uh, even you weren't medicating yet. No. When I okay, so when I was in ninth grade, some of my two of my siblings started smoking weed. And, you know, because of the DARE program, I was like, weed is the devil. Um, and but I did see, you know, that the people that my sister was hanging out with, my brother were hanging out with, like they were starting to sort of dabble with other things. Uh, one minute it was, you know, Adderall or Ritalin or um, I could end like the, the small little Vicodins, you know, we were in ninth, 10th grade. Like I, I sort of saw that happening and I wanted to be included with them. And that was a way for me to get included with them. Um, and so the first thing I ever did, it was Christmas day, 2003, it was night. No, it was Christmas night, 2003. I was 14. I smoked weed for the first time from a bowl, and promptly passed out. And then decided to watch a scary religious movie, and was just like in the corner like this the entire time. But it got me included with everyone else. Like I could be, I, I could hang with them if I was at least around them, and sort of you know was okay with what was happening so it started off as weed and then it weirdly progressed and one minute you know like we're just smoking weed next minute uh painkillers adderall you know and then the painkillers they went from being oxycontin to, like small oxys to being bigger and so i was more of the observer of the whole thing than i was an active participant the entire time just because it freaked me out too much i didn't like it and being told to chill out was never like it never made me chill. It was just like it, it would it would cause more anxiety or whatever. But eventually, I did sort of enjoy it, and that was when I discovered opiates. But I never used opiates during the school year ever. And I would only, you know, uh, I would only smoke on the weekends. I never really drank. I never had a taste for beer then. Uh, and also, beer wasn't available. Like, I feel like some people drank on the weekends at Audubon. Other people, they did drugs. We were the ones that did drugs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah, some people had connections or had, like, the confidence to walk up to a stranger to be like, hey, can you go buy that for me? And then some yeah. people, it was easier to talk to a friend and said, oh, you have pills? Let me just grab some of them. You know, and so people went to what was available. And they were cheap. Yeah. Like they, 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 they were a lot more accessible than they are now, and they were a lot less regulated. Like, you uh, know, it was, uh, yeah, they were everywhere back then. When was the first time that you were, like, so high from doing Oxy that you were like, I want this? Like, you know, did you ever have that moment where, like, you got really high and you were like, oh, I want to chase this? Well, I think the first time I enjoyed it, it was probably – Right before junior year, um, we had gone down to my uncle's house to the shore, Wildwood, and a, a friend of ours, I won't, or you know someone that you would have known from Audubon, he was like, well, you know, I wasn't going to give you, you know, he, he usually charged like double the price. That way he got one as well. But he's like, well, you know. I have these two. I'll give one to you or your brother. I don't remember if my brother did. I don't think he did. But um, I remember snorting it and, you know, just crushing it up, snorting it, and just being like, 
this is amazing. And it was maybe uh, a 20 or a 40. I don't remember, but I just remember sort of that. And I, um, I, I do vaguely remember kind of being sick and that trembling feeling that you get when like your body is overwhelmed, but just sort of being like, Oh, I like this. And I, I've said it before and I will keep saying it, you know, when people are like, you know, what was it like for you to get high? It was like if you – everyone says that every cloud has a silver lining. If you took all the silver linings out of every cloud and you put it into just one big, massive, wonderful, beautiful cloud and you just walk into it, that was what it was that, – that was what it felt like. And I never got a thinking. I never got it from weed. I never got it from anything else. It was like I don't have to feel anything that I don't have to feel. I don't have to feel – angry i can feel if i want to if i choose to but i don't actually have to i um, had the same experience like where like i was i was off like i was like oh this is what i've been looking for yeah. you know like yeah. this isn't weed this isn't this isn't what alcohol does for me and it's not gonna i don't have to drink 30 of them to get drunk I won't have to have bad breath. I won't have to have the hangover and then come to withdrawals later. Um, but, you just know, don't I, look at my pupils, basically. Yeah, just don't look at my pupils. But, yeah, you know, was there so that you had that moment? You had the same moment I did where you're like, oh, this is this is what I've been looking for. Yes, but that was playful. In 2006, I mean, people started dropping like flies, you know, from from heroin. And um, I mean, we're, we're both friends on, with his brother on facebook but you know when joe died it was like what the fuck like and, and we knew it was happening and i knew that people were doing heroin i was terrified of heroin i did not want to touch it other people around me touched it i was tricked into doing it actually and i hated every second of it you know uh that person almost got you know uh killed by the friend group that I had, but I mean, I was terrified. And then suddenly people started dying and I ran away from it. I was like, I'm not straight edge. I'm not going to be like that kind of poser straight edge dude, but like, I am not okay with this. This scares me. I don't like it. I didn't even smoke weed. Like I was like, this is awful. This is absolutely awful. And then, you know, throughout college, adulthood started happening people started dying and it was it was non-stop man i mean it was bad it was really bad were you doing yeah. when you were in college i no not really um the summer after my sophomore year of college so this would have been 2009 um michael jackson died which was traumatic June uh, 2009, I, I believe. Yeah, it was June 25th, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. June 28th. Yeah, I was, he died. I was still getting really high then. Yeah, um, he died. I didn't do anything that night. I um, I drank a bottle of, of wine with friends and just hung out listening to his music. But then a week later, my cousin Shannon, who is her, her mother, is my godmother, and she had the same birthday as my as my mother, uh, and we were very close growing up. She lived in Haddon Heights. She passed away in a car accident right before the 4th of July, and I was utterly 
devastated by just the total, you know, I, I, I knew that people died of old age and I knew that people obviously from Joe, they died from overdoses, whether or not, you know, they meant to take their own life, which I still don't know. I still don't know if anyone that overdoses, if there's a part of them that is like inherently suicidal, you're more of an expert than I am. But part of me feels like if there comes a point where you know what you're putting in your body, even if I, you don't. I mean, I yeah, the last three months of my addiction would look like me mixing Coke and, and my 30s in the same line, hoping my heart would stop. Right. So, yeah, so the, 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 yeah. yeah. Even if there's no note, you you the, there's a party that feels like they knew what they were doing because drug addicts are not stupid. But when my cousin died, that was so sudden and it was such a freakish thing. She was literally just driving up for a family party, and when we found out she passed away, there were fireworks showing off, and I could not deal. I could not handle. Uh, I lost my auto one day. I'm talking to her the next day. And then less than a week later, she's gone. And I I really had no coping mechanisms at all regarding it. Um, because I was always just like, you know, just keep everything bottled up. Just keep everything bottled up. Keep everything down. You know, don't upset it. Don't, don't make waves. Like, just don't upset anyone. Everything we've will be fine as long as you say that everything is fine. And it wasn't. And um, that was the first summer that I really was using because I was hurting in a very knowing way. I think my previous drug use had been, you know, unconscious pain, but that was like waking up upset and angry and wanting to, you know, be just wanting to be upset and just, quelling it you know pushing it down not dealing with it that was my first experience of okay this is active drug use that's really um crazy that's extremely crazy to me um the dates because i started using heavily you know october 2008 like i dipped and dabbed in high school pills here and there but i was more of a drinker we were right next to Camden County. We were right right next to Camden. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm really surprised when people are like, you know, why? Like, why did you do that? I'm like, do you know what Camden is? Like, we were right next to Camden. It was right easy. Next to yeah. It was available. It was very available. Yeah. Well, so I and there was a drought there, there before cannabis has been like more legalized and all that kind of stuff. Right. Back then, every time before there was an election, the borders would like you know tighten up, and there was always a drought on weed and all that. And at the and at the same time, I drinking was losing its fun for me. I had already been twenty one for an entire year, and I was uh-huh. going to the bars six nights a week, easy. Sometimes every night. And if I was at the bar, I was having a party in my apartment. I lived in the apartments next to Speedy Mart. And I always had parties. When there. did you live there? Because I went to one of those parties. I In my apartment? Yeah. I, yeah, it shows you how high I was. I lived there three different times. I lived there on the first... I lived in the basement from October... Two, no, um, I lived in the basement from March 2007 to um, July... 2008 and then i moved into a two-bedroom with a roommate and him and i had an apartment together um and we lived there from july 2007 july 2008 until 
July 2009. And right. then cut to years later, I lived there with Colleen for a little bit. Um, I but, think I was there the first time. It was the basement. Yeah, that was I, I, I was. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and I hung out with like, and, and that makes sense because like people from your grade would come over. Um, I, I remember. No, I went with coworkers from Applebee's. I went with people that knew you from Applebee's somehow. And yeah, like, we I, just I sort sold, of showed up there. I sold to people at Applebee's. I probably sold you pills uh, or maybe, I, or no, you weren't doing it. So that's, what's really funny, man, is I, the first time I tried to quit pills was mm-hmm. July 5th, 2009. Okay. I, I had gone really hard from October 2008, and then within a month, I knew I was addicted. Like, a lot of people say, like, oh, I didn't know I wasn't an addict. I didn't know. I knew. I full-on knew I was an addict, and I was okay with it within a month of being an addict. And by July, like that following July, right? I was just exhausted from what I was doing. And, you know, I was selling pills. I was doing pills, and it was just exhausting. And my parents were in Massachusetts, and I was like, fuck it, I'm done with this. I got to be out of Jersey. I got to get clean. So I, got, I bought, like, six subs. And this is when subs were only the orange capsules. They weren't, like, the sub strips. They were just right. the capsules. And I bought a bunch of subs. And on the 4th of July, when you were getting your bad news, I was at a 4th of July party. And then literally after the party ended, I wasn't drinking because when the party ended, I drove straight up to you know jert massachusetts and you know i had my suboxone and i was going to be on a straight and arrow and that didn't really last that long i ended up you know the problem was i'd go with myself you know what i mean like i did good for a while and then i met people and then next thing you know i'm like well you have connections can you get these and turns out massachusetts was a hotbed for opiates and i didn't know it Foxborough, right i was Um. in no, I was actually in um, right outside of Plymouth. Okay. And Cape Cod, there's literally a documentary on HBO about how bad Cape Cod is and that whole area is with heroin. So there's actually I, a whole American Horror Story. The new season is set in Cape Cod, oh, or probably yeah. town. Oh, and it's funny. all it's all about uh, meth addicts and like pill heads. I mean that that's what it's basically so, about. But it, yeah. it's American Horror Story. But no, I mean, it's it's crazy. And yeah, I... I stopped and you started, but... Um, yeah. So wait, cause I definitely... Did you work with Sean? Yeah. I sold him pills all the time. I was his dealer. So I, I, if, if so, he so ever I got... From him. Yeah, I bought from him. So you yeah. bought from me. Basically, yeah. He got his pills from me every day. I would either yeah. go to his house on, or I would go to Applebee's. I was like his dealer for a while. So yeah. every time that you got them, it was most likely they came from me. If you were doing thirty, if they if, you, if yeah. they were thirties, if you were doing thirties, yeah. when things got bad, they were thirties. Yeah, because they were um, the easy, they were the most available. Yeah, um, and you know, oxy at that point they already had the gel in them. And so yeah. after two thousand nine, well, I went to England, and that was a really great way to uh, get off the drugs. I, mean, I remember snorting pills in the bathroom at. Newark International Airport to study abroad for England, and I was clean the entire time, um, and I was just sort of dealing with my own stuff. And my brother had found his way to being clean. Uh, he did Suboxone. He did the official like Suboxone trials and everything, um, and he gradually weaned himself off. And I just sort of had this like 
I'm a Taurus, so I'm very strong-headed. So I was like, I'm going to do this. It'll be fine. And I came back, and things were okay. Things were fine. Um, I didn't touch pills for a while. And then right after Thanksgiving of 2011, I got gay bashed really bad at school. At college? Yeah. In college, I fairly Dickinson. I was walking to a friend's dorm room after my night course. It had been raining really hard. It was very tropical at that point for New Jersey in November. But I was wearing flip flops. It was warm. There was it was there was a lot of mud, and I was walking to my friend's dorm, and these drunk kids. It was a Tuesday night. They were drunk, and they said something to me. I said something back to them like, oh, don't, you know, get too fucked up. And they pushed me down the hill, hit my head as I rolled down the hill, rolled down the hill, uh, hit a parked car. And then I had my back, I had my spine and my ribs kicked in. I had my head kicked in. um, And I remember that really didn't faze me because I was such an, I was in such shock when it happened. But then they spit on me. And they walked away, and I just kind of went, I got into the dorm room, went into the private bathroom, washed up, and acted like nothing happened. But I had such a bad concussion from that um, that her roommate offered, you know, her leftover script of pain medication from a dental surgery. And I started taking that because I had finals coming up, and I had such a bad concussion that I couldn't, I couldn't look at a phone screen, a computer screen, anything. I, I couldn't deal. I, I couldn't. And and it none of what happened made sense. Like why it happened, what did I do, what did I say? Um, again, you no. Know, why was I the target? Whatever. Um, it was. It was just like, oh, I'm just going to turn this off. And when I came back, I from when I got done that school year, it was Christmas vacation. I was working at Applebee's, and the first question I asked, you know, at, when we started closing, I went to it wasn't Sean; it was one of his friends, and I was like, "Can you find anything?" And that was kind of the start of the three-year ride of me being like a drug addict, because I I just was like. If this is what it means to be uh, me at 22, then I would rather just kind of be numb to the whole thing. Like, I'd rather be, you know. We both started at 22. Yeah. Like, really getting fully into it. Oh, yeah. Dedicating our lives to being a drug addict. (laughs) Yeah, well, and, and... I, and, and, you know, it's funny when you mentioned, you know, when you sort of knew that you kind of, I don't want to use the word embrace, but like when you just sort of accepted like, oh, I enjoy this. This is what I, this is my bag. This is my bread and butter. This is what I enjoy. This is what I do. Um, I was 22, almost 23. Um, That summer, that following summer, I was at the beach with my dad. He came out to visit. We went to see Side Heights, me and him. The Dark Knight Rises had just come out. 
and there was just that big horrible shooting in Colorado at the movie theater. That's the only reason why I remember it. And I was on the beach smoking a cigarette, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to, like, you know, I'm looking at the water. It's beautiful. It's serene. It's pristine. It's lovely. I walk back onto the beach, and my dad is hanging up his phone. He says, uh, did Nora call you? I said, about what? He said, uh, your friend Emmerich, Mike Emmerich. I said, yeah, what about him? And he was basically my other brother. Like, he lived with us for a time period. My brother was called Johnson or Mullet because they both had the same first name. Um, he said, well, he hung himself last night. And I just remember my heart dropping and being so angry and confused about the whole situation because he had just had a kid. I had just talked to him you know, maybe a month before at Tap Room. Um, we had finally reconciled you know why he was a bully to me in my past because he was a bully a lot of my friends were bullies you know they they wanted to get me out of my shell and make me tougher and you know um i said like, what do you mean he killed himself like did he overdose like no he hung himself from a tree well this is what we knew and i was like what the actual fuck and just that in and holding in all that sort of sadness because i mean he called my mother ma and she called him son and so i i'm trying to imagine my what my siblings are going through because i was always the caretaker like when my parents got divorced and when things were going bad i kind of knew well i can do this to make my siblings feel better i can do this to make my mom feel better i can do this to make my friends feel better i can entertain put on a show whatever i'll do whatever is needed to make everything just okay and i couldn't do that and i saw my siblings being very sad very angry very confused then went to go see dark knight rises the entire time i'm like is this movie theater gonna get shot up and then i go home and i see my mom and she is just desolate like she is devastated she is so hurt and confused because my mom really treated all of my friends all of our friends like family you know they hung out at our house because they didn't really have anywhere else to go and so my mom actually for a long time thought you know that i encourage drug use my mom we were going to do drugs anyway like but you you were our mom like you would make us dinner you know provide insight whatever and i saw her be so upset and i immediately just texted somebody that i knew i was like can you get anything can you be here in five minutes and i went and i got high and i refused to go to his funeral and that is one of my biggest regrets is that i i did not go to his funeral or his memorial service because i didn't want to memorialize another dead 20 something year old like i went through it with uh joe lucas uh, Birdsaw, I went through it with Emmerich, I lost my cousin, I lost, you know, other people, and it was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. I'm done. I am done feeling this. Yeah, when I, I tell done... people, when I tell people about our town, like, yeah. you know, you know, because, you know, I'm up in the mountains, you know, in PA, I'm like, listen, like, we were a small town, small school, and, like, we still lose, like, a person a month. Yeah, no you know, one believes how small our high school is. 
They're like, what, what do you mean you went to a junior high school, a junior senior high school? I'm like, one building was for was for junior high, the other building was for high school. Yeah, like, I, 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 yeah. Um, that girl Jill. Um, that spoiler alert. That skinhead that she was in the holding cell with. She yeah. got to talking to him. Turns out they graduated high school together. And you know, and I was like, how did you not know that that you graduated high school? And she's like, well, there was thirty five hundred people in our school. And I was like, oh yeah, you're in California. You were in the valley, like. My class was yeah. one of the biggest classes to go through our school, and we were at 185. <laughs> My class was 165, yeah. See, exactly, yeah. We were so, a huge I mean, class. So no one really under – so I was just kind of done feeling that way, and I was like, you know what, I'll just – I picked up shifts for people that took off to go to his funeral, and I just worked, and I – I think the day of his memorial, that was probably the most I ever sported. Just and, and no one said anything. So I thought I was getting away with it. But I think they kind of knew that I was, you know, anesthetizing myself and just being like, I don't want to deal with this. I, I Because I was always a very emotional person. I was very much an empath. Um, most I was addicts very, are. Most yeah. addicts are. You know, we feel too hard and then we need to medicate because we don't understand how nobody else can feel as hard as we feel. Would you say that you're an empath as well? Yeah, I, and I and I think that, and I've talked to a lot of addicts. You know, even before yeah. doing this podcast, you know, I used to in L.A. I was going to four or five meetings a day in California. You know, when I first wow. got sober, I was hitting. You know, I did like 250 meetings in the first 90 days. They say do wow. 90 and 90. I did like 250 and 90, and that's including my first 28 days when I was in treatment, where I could only go to one or two a day. So, right. and I still ended up around 250 and 90. And what I've learned is a lot of us are empaths. A lot of us feel so hard and we don't understand why other people don't feel as hard as we do. <clears throat> and we need to escape that. We need to escape like that, not understanding, because that is the most fearful place that we could be in as empaths is the not understanding of something. Yeah, and when you don't understand something, it's fearful. Uh, presented a good face. Yeah, and so, that that was my coping mechanism. Uh, you know, so it was very easy to do that. Yeah. When you got into, like you said, you went on a three-year bender, pretty much, right? Yeah. And what did that? What did the day in the life of Franklin look like for you know a three-year bender? Because I know my days were pretty much the same when I was on benders for a while. You know. What was your life looking like then? Well, I mean, I will say, I mean, you mentioned the person that you sold pills to that I got pills from. And I looked at him and I was like, well, that's a drug addict because he would say things like, I can't get out of bed without snorting something, without doing a line. And I was like, well, I, 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 I can't do that. Like, I was very much aware of my surroundings and how I appeared to people, how I talked to people. Um, I never wanted to come across as a drug addict because... That would just have been the worst possible thing, right? Um, my brother's already gotten clean. Um, I've had this history with drug abuse. Like, I don't want to ever appear that way. So I was very regimented after a certain point where uh, it would only be, like, I would probably have about two thirties in a day, cut them in half, you know, snort the first half before going to work, drink a Red Bull, work, snort the other half in the bathroom, um, if I needed anything, I would text my dealer and have him. I had this really weird 
thing where I'd be like, can, can you pick me up a pack of cigarettes and two large Red Bulls? And she'd be like, okay. Uh, and dot to dot. And so I would throw the money. I, I would fold the money up, and he would throw the pills into the bag, the Wawa bag, and he would hand it to me at the door because we could have people drop stuff off to us, and I would take it, and I would pocket the uh, the pills, and I would put the Red Bull away, put the cigarettes in my pocket, and I'd go to the bathroom to go to the pill. No one said anything. Um, and so I thought I was... I thought I was a genius at hiding everything. Were you addicted to the ritual as much as you were addicted to? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like everyone had different rituals, right? Like we, like you and I both were addicted to snorting. Like I mm-hmm. loved snorting, and uh, the idea so, of just taking it—I was like, "What do you mean you just take it? Like, no, you you chew it or you snort it." And by February, I had decided to move to where I am now, which is Newport News, Virginia. Um, I had a friend that I had met on Grindr, uh, strictly platonic friend, and he was like, you know, you should try living down here. You're from the South. You would like it. So I moved down here. I'm working down here. I hated the first restaurant job that I had, so I got a job at another restaurant, which is, I'm still connected with them, Brickhouse Tavern, and they're lovely. And they gave me a job out of pity. They're like, you seem really nice, but like, you know, we, we don't think this is going to last. And I, I was working there making good money and I was still using. Um, and it was a Saturday night. It was August 9th, 2014. I had just turned 25 that May. Um, my father had just come to visit, you know, the week before that and, I knew that I could not keep up pretenses with him anymore. Like, he knew that something was going on with me. He didn't ask me about it. He didn't say anything. But right before my dad came to visit, um, I am not a very spiritual person, but I do remember feeling sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And I went outside to smoke a cigarette, probably after doing um, a bit of a pill, and just talking up, like talking up to the sky, being like, you know that I'm done. I know that I'm done. I just need definitive proof that I cannot do this anymore. And I will quit cold turkey. I will do whatever is necessary. But I am so tired of feeling this way. Like, I am exhausted. And my dad came to visit shortly afterwards. And there, it was the strangest thing. Like, Um, my parents have been divorced for a long time and I'm not a crier. I'm not an emotional person. People think that I'm emotional because I'll get choked up at movies and shit, but I don't cry. I don't sob. My dad was hugging me to say goodbye and I felt it coming. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And as soon as he left, I ran into the, into the kitchen and I'm sobbing into the sink. Like I cannot stop. And for the next couple days, I was just being triggered by these weird, you know, smells, emotions, this, that, and the third. Like, I could not stop crying. And um, I worked a Saturday night. I thought I was fine. I get done work. Um, I'm having a drink. And I was not a drinker at that point, but I had a bottle of vodka in the fridge. And... A friend that I worked with named Lane, she called me. And 
what's very interesting about this call is that she was coked out of her skull. She was not with it. Um, she was totally blackout. Like she does not, apparently she did not remember any of the conversation that we had, but it was about a two hour conversation. She's like, Hey Franklin, I just needed to tell you this. Um, but we know what you're doing. We found your ID. We found your wallet in the, in the bathroom earlier and we know what you're doing. And if you keep doing this, you will die. And I was shocked. Like, let me, let me guess your, your license had an indent inside of it. Uh, well, Virginia licenses, they don't indent like New Jersey licenses do, but I still have my New Jersey license. So that had an indent in it. Um, it was like, I, it was either my license or uh, my debit card. Something was on the counter of the uh, of the sink rim, and she was like, "I just don't understand what's going on." Like, she's like, "You are the nicest person. You are so easy to work with. Everyone loves you. You have so much personality. You you are." an amazing server because I can take down orders without writing them down, never make mistakes. She's like, I don't understand what you're doing. I really don't. And I kept trying to go into my Rolodex of excuses or um, everything else. And I couldn't come up with anything. I, and I'm outside smoking a cigarette, you know, just pacing back and forth on the phone. It's, Three in the morning, and I'm just chain smoking cigarettes at this point. Um, and she's like, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why you're doing this. And and I can tell she's fucked up. Like, you know, the the cocaine alcohol mixture is very easy to hear on some people when they're talking to you. And I'm just like, but but I, I was listening. I wanted to listen. And she's like, well, what, what would cause you to stop I'm like well this is causing me to want to stop but i don't know if anyone would want to help me um and she said what do you need so well i'm short on rent i'm sleeping on my friend's couch i don't know anyone here like i've been here for months and i'm i'm not really involved in anything like i don't know what to do like i am completely isolated and it really was like she was giving me a lifeline, even though it didn't feel like it in that way. I'm just talking about it looking back. Like, you know, she was really throwing out, you know, a really janky lifeboat that kind of had holes in it. And she's like, well, just talk to talk to the owners, you know, let them know what's going on with you. She's like, they love you. They're not going to fire you. She's like, I promise you, they're not going to fire you. They're going to do whatever they can to keep you. And we talked for hours. I went to sleep, woke up, had a conversation with, with my roommate that I was staying with. And uh, he was like, we can't keep doing this. Like, this is getting too scary for me. And I was crying, going, I understand, I understand. Um, and I went into where I worked. And it was a Sunday, and I ordered a drink, and I'm just sitting there, and the bartender comes over. She's like, Franklin, like, you look like you've been crying. What's wrong? And I, I just opened up my phone, I put it down, and I showed her the entire 
sort of scroll of text messages, and I let her read it. I'm like, just read it. She goes in the back. She brings out the manager. The manager, Clint, is a couple years older than me, and he is stunned. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, everything that you guys have been talking about regarding me in the last couple days is all true, but I want to stop. Like, I'm just... It was like, I have nothing left to lose right now. Like, I'm just going to lay it all out. Like, and he goes, okay, hold on. And he goes in the back. I think he made a phone call. He comes up and he's like, do you want to go smoke a cigarette really quick? So I go in the back and I, I never understood that, that term. Like, you know, when you were sick and tired of being sick and tired, I never understood it, but I felt so emotionally drained, physically drained. Like, I'm sitting there in this sort of lawn chair kind of thing, smoking a cigarette, and he's like, so what's going on? And I said, I am using opiates, and I can't stop. I am terrified of going through withdrawals, and... I don't know how to, um, I, I don't know how to do this and also work because I have to work. Like I need something. And he, uh, said, well, what do you need? I said, well, I, I'm off Tuesday. I'm off Thursday. I work Wednesday and we have these concerts in the, the square near where I work in the summer. I was like, I, I cannot work that day. And I'm really sorry, but I cannot work that day. I need three days off just to like get totally clean. I'm like, I have not used since midnight and I work all day tomorrow. I just, I, I, I need three days off to just scream and do whatever. I just need to do it. And he goes, okay, well, and he goes back in, he comes back out. He's like, so they're willing to do that. They're willing to let you like work all day tomorrow and then just be off for three days. And, but you know, uh, we need like some kind of insurance policy on this promise that you're making. What can you provide us? I was like, dude, I literally have nothing. I am sleeping on my friend's couch. I am making up the bed. My shit has been moved from the bedroom to the uh, to the garage in little drawers. Like, I have nothing. I don't even have a permanent address. My family will not talk to me. My mom will not talk to me because, she's, because she has said, you know, uh, I will not speak to you if it feels like a phone call where I'm being lied to. My siblings are really like, I, I just need to do this. And he goes, okay, what else? And I was like, well, if you ever think that I am fucked up ever again, drug test me or just fire me. If you think that I, if, if I come in and I'm acting like how I used to act, drug test me or just tell me to leave whatever i don't fucking care i just need these couple days off i just need to experience it experience getting clean i just need that 
total hurt, whatever. I, I can't even think about it. Like it was, it was like, I just need to go through it and I will come back. I won't be 100% right away, but I'll be back. And he went, okay. He's like, I totally support you. I, I think you can do this. Awesome. And so I worked the next day and I was a wreck. Like I was fine until four o'clock and then this annoying girl came in and I just told her to fuck off. I was like, just shut the fuck up. Like, stop. Just shut the fuck up. Like you are annoying. It was bad. But it was really interesting when I when I actually vocalized, you know, hey, I'm an addict and this is what I'm dealing with. Everyone that I came in contact with, nothing they said was bad. All of it was, you know, <clears throat> oh, well, whatever I can do to help you, you know, whatever you need, it's fine. Like, you need, you need cigarettes? Do you have money for cigarettes? Like, I know you, you owe rent. Like, do you need cigarettes? You want a Red Bull? You want et cetera? And like, whatever you need. Like, being transparent and open and honest, it was the most freeing thing but it was also the most naked feeling I've ever had in my entire life. And I was, <sighs> so five o'clock rolls around, I'm doing dinner service and I'm waiting on table and <laughs> I'm sorry if I get emotional. Um, this is August 11th and my friend Heath walks in and he's a big comic book nerd, whatever. And he just goes, can you put MSNBC or CNN on or whatever? I was like, what do you want to watch? It's like, what's going on? He goes, Robin Williams just died. And I, I did not believe him. I was like, what, what? And we, I turned it on and we're the entire restaurant was watching the news break that Robin Williams had been found dead. And for, I don't know why, I think the just the entire like everyone has their memory or generational memory of Robin Williams, what he means to them. But it was I was for some weird reason it felt palpable to me. Like this is someone that gave joy to people. That was funny. That was eccentric. That was always on. You know, always everything. And he killed himself. Young himself. It wasn't an overdose. It wasn't, you know, a tragic accident. It was something that he had intentionally done. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going down this way. I, I, I can't do that. I have to, I have to do something different. And um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it was like, I cannot allow my own personal demons or whatever to strip me of whatever gift I have to the rest of the world. See, that's you, you had and so when your friend called you out on the phone, we call that a 12 step call. I don't know if you ever went through AA or if you went through the steps or anything. Um, but we yeah. call that, we call that a 12 step call when someone's like, you know, calling somebody out like, Hey, you need some help, you know? And, um, the, the interview we did yesterday got really emotional um and he was talking about when his friend gave him a 12-step call 
and his friend said to him, "Yeah, I'm going to an AA. I'm going to AA now, but like, don't worry, it's not for you. It, it won't. It won't work for you. It's not for you." And he said that was the perfect twelve-step call for me because, like, I'll show you kind of thing. Um, but what you had with Robin Williams is what I would call a moment of clarity. Yeah, there's a difference between being called out for being like having a problem, you know, and then you having the realization yourself, like, I need to change things. Because that's yeah. when that's when the switch, you know, before that, somebody's turned the light on for you. But that's yeah. when you're turning the light on for yourself, if that makes sense. And when someone wants to do something for me, I'm going to automatically be like, I, I'm, I'm good. I got it. But when it was something for me, it was like, OK, so this is this is whatever I was talking about. Like, and I'm not a religious person, but it was like, this is exactly what I was kind of, not that I wanted Robin Williams to die. I just this is yeah. this is all too perfectly arranged and I, I i sweated it out you know for three days and you know i had friends come over and they were they were holding me when i was like just and i didn't have i, I wasn't vomiting and i wasn't shaking horribly it was like trembles it was like little little things i, like I, I, I did it without suboxone when i got clean i didn't use subs I, I refused to box it in rehab, you know, and I wanted it to hurt. I didn't want it. I, I went to rehab because I wanted to go to rehab. Nobody made me go to rehab. Yeah. So I didn't want to be comfortable and be okay with going back. Yeah. So I just, I, wanted, I, I just needed supervision. Yeah. And I also, I also would, like, watch interviews with, like, celebrities that had gone, gone to rehab talking about, like, what worked for them. And the only thing I've ever heard is, you know, they break you down you get down to like the rubble of who you are and you just kind of have to put it back together again. And that was what I wanted. And what I will say, and I don't think we talked about this is um, the second night that I was asleep and I could not sleep at all. Um, I felt these stabbing pains in my diaphragm, like my lower stomach. You know, I, I, was laying there and I felt like someone was sh stabbing me in the stomach and I immediately tensed up and I'm like, Oh, this is withdrawal. And then there was this weird voice in the back of my head going, no, this is pain. This is, and I waited a moment and, and I was like, what is like, And the, the voice was like, this is all the pain that you've been holding down for so long. It's like, you have to feel it. It's, and it was like, and so in my brain, it was like, this is why you have been doing what you're doing. Like you're trying to push everything down. You just have to, you have to feel the pain that you're feeling in your life. But my entire life had been me just swallowing everything, not allowing myself to be vulnerable, not allowing myself to be emotional, not allowing myself to be, Feeling Whatever the feelings. I was feeling the feeling. Yeah, like, and so I, I, and so it was it was actually freeing to like take deep breaths and just expand my diaphragm and just like let my body process it because your body holds on to emotion, it holds on to trauma, it holds on to everything else, and if you go through an accident, you go to a chiropractor, you go to you, you, you do things to like get rid of it but i had never gotten rid of it 
I have not gotten rid of all that emotional, mental, whatever I had gone through. So I was just holding on to everything. And it was so freeing that like the next day I felt so much better. I was still, I still felt like shit, but the colors were brighter. The, the noises were louder. Like I was more aware that I had been in years and it was, it was, it acceptance. was so... <laughs> you accepted the pain. You accepted the yeah. realization. You accepted what it is to feel things. And when you can accept things, you let things go. But you yeah. can accept something, you just you just got past it. You just got through it. Like well, they, yeah. They, oh, yeah. So on that, I had just watched American Horror Story Coven, which if you have not watched, is a great season. But the final episode, there's one character played by uh, Sarah Paulson. The other character is Jessica Lange, plays her mother. Jessica Lane is dying of, can- of cancer, and she wants Sarah Paulson's character, her daughter, to kill her. And the daughter says, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, you're afraid. You are so afraid of dying that you will do anything to remove yourself from the process. Um, and I remember hearing the next line and just thinking, oh, that's so true. Uh, before I got clean. And she's like, the only way out of your fear is to go through it. The only way you can truly face your fear is to just walk through it and just go through it and just experience it. And then you're free of it. It's done. Yeah. And One of my so favorite I, cliches is only way out is through. Yeah, the only way out is through. And, they, they, you know... Um, it was such a freeing idea that I have been I have been so bowed down by everything that I had ever been sort of experienced in my life that I'm kind of free of this shit now. Or I, I was free of that because I just had to embrace it, own it, wear it, be it, you know. And people let me be a train wreck. People let me be you know just this sad looking person at the bar drinking water just wanting to talk to someone like what's wrong with you i'm like well i'm 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 detoxing like like oh off of what am i off of opiates like i was very honest i was weirdly honest i was weirdly transparent like if i was gonna do it without going to rehab i just had to be like well i am now six days clean and it was just like it was a process and um, it was amazing what happened afterwards. Like, I I met the best friends that I still have afterwards. Like, I, it was weird to me to actually make friendships. It was weird to me to have people choose for me to be their friend instead of it being a work situation or, you know, a... Uh, a friend of a friend situation. Yeah, you grew up with them, or somebody was your neighbor, or your brother's friends, or schoolmates. Yeah, I it never had organic. friends. Right? Yeah, I never had friends. I never had organic friendships ever, and it was uh, Halloween of that year. I had been clean for a couple months, and I was still going through weird like night moments of like waking up feeling like those weird withdrawal were symptoms. Get, were you were you ever getting? dreams like i had a lot of early my first nine months 
every couple weeks, I would have a dream where like I was getting high. I had I, I would have a dream that someone that someone that a stranger would like put a pill in my hand and everyone that I knew saw. And I would wake up from that and everyone always woke up before you got high, right? That that was the yeah. thing. And there no was one ever saw me getting high. It was it being in my hand. Yeah, yeah, but then you would wake up. There I yeah. only had one dream where I slept through it and I actually got high in my dream and I felt high in my dream. And I mm-hmm. liter- and I woke up and I was like, oh, uh, I'm, it was a dream. I'm not, I didn't fuck up. Mm-hmm. And it jarred me, you know, and thank, thank fucking Bill Murray, my higher power behind me that, you know, that I went to meetings so much because I could go to a meeting and talk about it. And I talked about it. They're like, you know what you call that? And I said, what? Like a nightmare? And they were like, well, it, you know, we call it a freebie. You're still sober. You didn't lose your date. You're still sober. That's a freebie. And I said, yeah. okay. But, yeah, it's a nightmare, you know, because our nightmares it, are ours. hard. <laughs> and it's it's a crazy thing. A lot of the times, you know, people always say, like, oh, I, I would go to, like, buy the pills or buy the dope, and I couldn't see the dealer's face. I could just see the drugs. And, like, no, not this time. This time I saw my dealer, my dude my like high up dude that i used to go through i saw his face i talked to him we had a conversation when i was 25 my 25th birthday my twin sister drove down with her friend amen and i took a picture i put it on instagram and then months later i'm looking through i'm like oh god i look awful i looked awful in that photo and i showed it to people um because i remember getting clean and just wanted to eat all I wanted to do was eat. Like, uh, You're and, not and just sort of being like, oh, okay. And I mean, so basically I just filled out. But like, when I show people that picture, they're like, dude, the Holocaust ended in 1945. Like, I wasn't that emaciated, but I looked the closest that they would understand to what starvation was. Because I really was. I was only eating to prevent myself from passing out. Like, I would drink water, I would shower, I would do everything I could in the morning and at night, but, like, nothing when I was doing drugs was going to distract from getting high. Like, I would make sure I had a full stomach, everything, but, like, bleh. But so, um, how's, so how's recovery looking for you after, you know, you finally dry out, you know what I mean? You finally do your detox... You're feeling better. You have like your moment of clarity, which everyone needs. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't have your moment of clarity and you're not doing it for you, you're doing it for somebody else and you're doing it wrong. You know, you got to want sobriety. You you have to want it. You have to find a way to want it and not need yeah. it. You know, if you were just doing the sober thing because, you know, like, you know, your friends are going to, you know, you, you need to do it for, you know, or else you won't have a place to live or else you won't have a job. It's not going to work out. When you actually right. want it because you found reason to want it, then it works, you know? And that's why when you had that moment of clarity, it works because right. it was you that made that decision from there on out. You were in control. You were in the driver's seat again. Yeah. What what happened was, was that I was really nervous to go back to work. It was a, on a Friday and I put headphones on. I was like, I'm going to go for a walk. Cause that, that's my kind of thing. Like I, I'd like to go to 
guy who walks listening to music. It was an Ariana Grande song. Uh, I'm thinking of the song like, um, this is the part when I say I don't want to, I'm stronger than I've been before. It, it was that song. And it was like, this is, this is my anthem right now. I'm going to do it. And didn't do drugs, but I never drank really before that ever. I was, I was such a, my tolerance was so low and I was so afraid of mixing alcohol and pills that I, I would enjoy a drink or two, but it would not go farther than that. Like I was never, I'm going to drink to throw up. Like usually if I threw up it's because did too much, drank too much, smoked too much, make myself sick. Like that was kind of the only thing that I knew. Um, but all the people that I met that were, who are still really good friends of mine, they, I don't know if they have addiction issues. I, I don't want to put that on them, but like they enjoyed having a, a, a drink on a Saturday, whatever. So when I started enjoying life and started feeling alive again, and this is probably why rehab I should have done, or I should have gone to AA meetings and just had that structure and everything. Like I, I really do feel like my recovery, I'm not ashamed of it at all. But I think I was kind of ashamed of recovery, just like poor people are about food stamps or unemployment. Like, I, I earned it, but I didn't kind of take it and go, I'm going to use this. This is for me. Um, because labeling yourself is a very hard thing to do. Like, I could label myself as an addict and say, like, oh, I've had an issue with drugs. But it wasn't, I, I couldn't say... I have an addictive personality. I have an issue with all substances and yeah. all feelings. Cause it's not like I, it's not like alcohol led you to pills like it did for me. You know, you weren't even a drinker. It was just you started with pills. It's like you reverted. Yeah. You went from pills to drinking. Yeah. Oh yeah, which, I did. Yeah, which is okay. You know, you figure it out how you figure it out. Yeah, and. So, 14 months go by, I meet really fantastic friends who actually want me to be their friend. Like, I don't, like, no one wanted me to, like, I had friends, but they weren't really my friends. Like, they were friends by association, whatever, but I had people that actively, like, I would wake up to text messages from these people being like, what do you want to do today? You want to go to the beach? You want to do this? You want to do that? Go to a Billy Joe concert, go to a Madonna concert, like, you know whatever it was amazing and i i remember did you see billy joel i had my wait did you hmm? see billy joel did you see billy joel what year did yeah. you see billy joel uh i saw him in 2015 in virginia beach and it was amazing i saw him on that same tour when he went to north carolina probably right after that yeah i saw, I saw him in north carolina in december 2015 did he do the uh, the uh, the encore of Uptown Girl? He did at all the very end. Yeah. yeah, he did. When like, he's yeah. twirling the microphone yeah. stand and all of a sudden, that like, was such a fun dude, show. you're seventy five. Yeah, what are you was, doing? It <laughs> was, was amazing. Yeah, so we we saw him on the same tour in 2015. Yeah. that's funny. Okay, so and I saw Madonna. Yeah, so yeah. that was June, and then I saw Madonna. It'll be 
two weeks from now, it was like right before football kicked off. Like, and I was drinking way more than I ever had. Like, I'm talking half a bottle of Grey Goose or Belvedere and tonic at night. Like, that was my drinking choice. Like, it was my, I can get done work, get yelled at, everything at work, and then just go and just sort of have a drink and watch Vampire Diaries and be fine. Watch Scandal. I'm fine. How to get away, get away with murder. I'm fine. Like, I can just sort of relax, whatever. And I didn't realize that I was drinking way too much. Um, my whole idea was if you uncork a bottle of wine, you don't go to bed until the bottle of wine's empty. Like, that was... It, it was just whatever um but i was being worked to a point and i will place blame on the people that that are my employers now is that they knew what they had when they got it like i would never say no i would always say yes i would always just sort of um doesn't matter how much red bull i drink i will do whatever you need me to do i will show up i will do the job whatever you need and that's the restaurant business. Like, I was that person. I was the ideal employee. Ideal. But the more exhausted I was, the less of an appetite I had. And so, October 19th, 2015, I was finally off after, like, two weeks of working non-straight, or non-stop. And I did not have an appetite, but I had beer in my fridge. So I drank the beer, got a text later on to go to a bar, um, got dressed, I looked adorable, uh, went to that bar, met up with some Brad brothers who were much younger than I was, but it was fine. And eventually ended up where I work and I was watching an Eagles game and someone thought I was cute. I didn't think they were cute, and it got really weird and awkward. I don't really remember. And I turned him down, and I just started drinking to feel less bad about what I had just done. And right before I left, my boss was like, hey, let me give you a ride home. Like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Like, I'm off tomorrow. I can just sleep it off. I'm fine. I'm walking down the street. I have my headphones in. I see the 7-Eleven to my left. I see a medical center to my right. I turn on to Jefferson Avenue, which is kind of like the equivalent of Kings Highway to Nicholson. Like, and three days later, I wake up with a breathing tube down my throat. And I can't breathe. I can't, can't move, and I'm asking in sign language what's going on, and they and my mom said you were hit by a car, and I was like, okay, well, can you get this out of me, please? Like, can you just take? Because it's like you know those cocktail straws from bars, like the small little black straws. Yeah, I use them for coffee. Hmm? I use them for like, my coffee stirrer straws here. Yeah, that's what it feels like to be incubated. 
like with everyone talking about COVID and how it's not that serious. Like, if you've ever been incubated, like, it's like you're all eating just like this, and then there's this thing down your throat which goes down to about here, and it winds your esophagus, and then the tube that's in there, you can only really breathe off of when it's hooked up to machines. So when you are awake and they turn the machines off, it's like you're breathing through one of those little black straws. Like, it's really hard to breathe, and I'm signing stuff to my mom. You know, uh, I'm writing stuff down, like, just take this out, just take this out. Like, And I was so out of it. Like, I was out of it. But I'm um, being blessed, though, that you ha- you knew ASL already from your, you know, bad hearing, you know? You know most, yeah. If it were me, I I don't know ASL. You know what I mean? If I would have woke up with that. You'd just be, like, grabbing for shit. Yeah. 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 Anyone would. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, oh, and one of my arms is completely down. Like, my right arm had surgery on it, so, like, that is bound down. I can only use one hand, and I'm just trying to sort of, I, I can't see anything. I can't hear anything. I'm just trying to, like, talk to someone, and they said, you were hit by a car. And it was, um... I was hit by a car going 55 miles an hour. I was walking across the street. I don't remember walking across the street. I don't, no one really knows what exactly happened. They have an idea. They don't, there, there's this idea that I blacked out before I was done crossing the street and I kind of went into like the median in between like the two lanes and I was by one of the bushes and I walked out and because it was October and I was wearing a dark jacket and with the lighting, the person didn't see me coming. It's not really clear. But, um, no, I was hit by a car going almost 60 miles an hour. Uh, I snapped my humerus. My tibia, um, my humerus was snapped in my right arm. The tibia was snapped. I had three skull fractures, three orbital fractures, a massive craniotomy on this side of my brain, a collapsed lung, um, and if I hadn't gotten to the hospital when I did, my brain stem would have swelled up with blood due to the hemorrhaging, but it would have gone into the spinal column and it would have either killed me right away or paralyzed me. And somehow I woke up from that. <laughs> so. And you're here. Yeah. And so. I before then i definitely had it afterwards wait, wait, wait say it again if i didn't have a survival skill before then i definitely had it afterwards because i i always saw my addiction or like that the pill episode of my life as just being like a chapter of my life and i was like okay it's done i'm done um but i didn't sort of see it as being a continuous thing where it doesn't matter what you're addicted to. Like, you know, you just sort of go from one thing to the other. I didn't realize that. And I didn't understand the emotional impact that it could have because I wasn't as, I wasn't as bad as other people in terms of my addiction. Like I was bad and I did bad things and I was not always the nicest person, but I, in terms of comparing myself to other people, I wasn't like them. 
which I really hate to say, but I, I, I totally do that, which I, I, I think a lot of people do. Like they, they rationalize their own behavior. Yeah. Um, but afterwards, I mean, it was, it was, it was a year or so long process of just sort of trying to figure out why the fuck am I still here and why am I lucky? Why am I allowed to be breathing when there are other people who aren't? And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I, I still think I'm dealing with that. Like, I still don't understand why, the why. And I, I, I think at this point, there's no answer. Like, Spoiler they, they, alert, just, you don't have to understand. Yeah. Like, you said you're not religious, right? But... but I was raised you know, Catholic on my mom's side, but my yeah, dad's an atheist, so I'm yeah. weirdly in the middle. Well, I, I was raised Catholic and everything, but, like, you know there's a difference between, like, spirituality and religion? Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever explained the difference between it? Well, organized religion is, like, the It's a, the it's whole... a simple... It's a simple sentence, and it's religion is for people who fear hell, and spirituality is for people who've been to hell and made it back. Oh. So that's why. Yeah. When I was in AA early on, I was so against saying God. I was so against doing a God. I still can. And that's why. That's why my higher power is Bill Murray. You don't have to call it a God, you know, in AA. You don't. You can. It's a force. There is a force, you know, things work themselves out, you know, yeah, I call it the universe. <laughs> it's a law of attraction, you know what yeah. I mean? And so when someone said to me, like, that's the difference, like, you don't have to be religious, but be spiritual, believe in something, anything, it is going to benefit you. And yeah. I, I was like, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to pray to fucking God. I'm not religious. He was like, yeah, but you've been to hell and back. And I was like, what? And then he said that to me and that clicked right away. You know, that made yeah. sense to me. That was like, holy shit. Now I get it. All right. Yeah, I'm spiritual. There is something. It's not some, you know, sky daddy. You know what I mean? Like, we've been to space. We know what's up there. But there is a consciousness. Those triggers, that's the only way you take power back is to find positivity in the triggers. The triggers are always going to be there. The triggers aren't going anywhere, especially when you are fortunate and unfortunate like us to have ridiculous memories. Yeah. You know, when we have memories the way you do, you really remember little things about certain people. And especially when you use grief and loss, you know, because our problem was not drugs and alcohol. I don't know if you know that. Our problem was not drugs and alcohol. Our solution, I think it's our yeah. solution to our problem was drugs and alcohol. Yeah. You know, whatever our problem was, the solution for us was to get drunk or get high. But the yeah. actual problem was we didn't know how to deal with grief. We didn't know how to deal with loss. We didn't know how to deal with trauma. You know, because when you start using, that's when your emotional brain, your brain gets stunted from there. You stop learning how to be a human. You. That's, right. that's where, you know, like... I never learned how to process death. I will say this in terms of I, I hadn't done AA before I got clean or NA, but I did go to therapy. My mom did put me in th- into therapy after I got gay bashed. Um, she's like, Some, something's going on. Something's off with you. I don't know what's going on, but like something's going on. So I was still using drugs, but I wasn't showing up dope sick or anything 
when I was there. But um, her name was Dr. Valerie Travis, and she's amazing. Her uh, company is Miracles of the Mind. And she was just asking me about my entire sort of uh, life. And by the end of it, she just turns to me, and she just looks at me. She goes, so what is the one thing that you have not said to me that you need to say? And the only thing I could think of was, I love myself way too much to hate my own life, but I could never kill myself. You're the second person that has said I'm basically way too vain to kill myself. <laughs> You're the the other girl a couple weeks Is ago. Is that bad? Like, no, 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 no. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And no, no, no. That's, that's so, a good thing. So she just turns to me and goes, oh, so this is a self-esteem issue. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so she, basically what we figured out, so I had done a lot of work, emotional work, even though I was still going through the the addiction process and like, you know, using, I had, I was honestly trying to sort of work on the emotional stuff before I handled the physical. The physical was what really freaked me out, like getting off of the drugs. Um, but it was like, she's like, you're, you should not feel this bad about yourself. Why do you feel so small? Why do you feel so contained? Why do you feel so, um, inhibited? And it was really amazing when I actually sort of got clean and I had done emotional work, but then I did the physical work and it was like, I'm free. This is, this is a new me. I think I enjoyed it too much. I enjoyed it too much. And I think uh, it probably happens a lot more than just me, someone who quits the drugs but doesn't work on everything else. Like, I thought it was just drugs. But the emotional stuff. Yeah, is, we, call, is we a, call it white knuckling. You know, if yeah. somebody just like quits drugs and doesn't try to work on himself, you know. Yeah. Like I said, the drugs weren't the problem. They were the solution to our problems, and we ha and you have to learn how to fix your problems without that solution anymore. And you know? I'm still fixing it. Like I'm, I'm still learning I, to stand up for myself. You know, going to going to support groups or AA or NA is a good thing because you learn a lot of tools. Because those tools come in handy. Because like you're gonna need them eventually. You know mm. and. Even just going through the like going through the steps for me was amazing. Oh my god, I got through the steps in like a month, maybe two months, and it fucking I use the steps still to this day. I think anybody, whether you're an alcoholic, an addict, um, overeater, any you're trying to get over your codependent, um, anybody can use the steps and have them benefit you. Um, right. You know the the word alcohol is only in the twelve steps one time. Hmm. If you if you read all the twelve steps, the word alcohol is only in there one time, and it's in the first step. Besides that, it's all about you. You know, as like I have a problem with alcohol, and then there's a semicolon, and after the semicolon, it says my life was unmanageable. That's the key to me in the first step, is that my life was unmanageable because of whatever that is. You can replace the word alcohol with anything. You can put drugs, you can put eating, you can put girls, you can put guys, you can put whatever in that word for alcohol. Whatever is making your life unmanageable, you can put there and then do the rest of the steps and be relieved of it. I've wow. done it. I helped the sponsee get over his ex by putting her name in there.
So I know it's possible, and it's it is a good feeling. When did you quit drinking officially? Ten months ago. Ten months ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what made you decide to just be like, I'm done with drinking now? Being that hungover and that tired and like needing that glass of water at four in the morning in the most weirdest way possible when you're like, how the fuck am I this dehydrated? Like, if I had, could, I was like, okay, I can't drink liquor anymore. Vodka's not my friend. Whiskey's not my friend. Wine is not my friend. Rum is not my friend. I'm just going to stop drinking this. I'll drink beer. And then I drink beer. And then that built up and got crazy. So like, okay, we'll all switch over to ciders and seltzers. Because that's easier. That's more manageable. <laughs> you literally went down the fucking pyramid, dude. I know I did. I know I like, did. And like, I've talked to some It's the gayest before. thing I can think of. Yeah. yeah like, I've talked to... And what's funny... It, really hilarious the other person that i'm thinking of um her name is devin i interviewed her a few weeks ago it was a very fun interview i know yeah. her from know her from rehab i know her from aa in la but we're yeah. from Jer- she's from jersey it's a very funny interview it's a very raw interview but she started with heroin and then quit heroin and then went to pills and then she quit pills and then guess why she went to rehab tequila so like literally well, tequila has never mind. No, but no, but it's alcohol. It's alcohol. Yeah. It's alcohol. Yeah. And guess what? Well, because she, it's so readily available, right? It's so and easily accessible. And she's married to a woman. So it's so funny how similar you two are if you break it down. Because you went from, you know, pills to hard liquor, basically, then to, you know, beer, then to wine and shit, then to beer, and then to seltzers, and then... You literally were stepping yeah. It's almost like you were tapering without even knowing it. I, I was trying to. I was trying to sort of have as much self-control as I could possibly have just to sort of say I have self-control because my family doesn't live down here. I don't have any living family in this area. I only have my bound family, and that's all very transient, right? Um they can live here for a couple of years and then they leave. So that has to be a text message. So it's like, you know, let me just sort of try to do this the best that I can and be aware enough to stop the bad things that I'm doing when it's being called to my attention. And it, it didn't really work. And then when I went up to New Jersey um, due to COVID and I was up there for a little bit, it was like, no matter what I did, no matter how I thought I was behaving, I was being called out on my behavior or perceived things that I was doing, which I probably was doing. I probably was. I, I was. Um, mistakes that I was making or whatever. And it was like, oh, this isn't fun. This is not fun. This is not. I, I, I am too old for this dance. I don't like this dance. I don't like what this means. It because it's ride. Yeah. And, you know, um, it was, it was, I was utterly exhausted by the end of it. I was utterly exhausted. And what's nice about being back here for the summer, even though work has always been just weird, it it was very nice to have different relationships with the people that I worked with before without drugs and alcohol being a part of it. You know, if I'm having a bad day, you can just tell I'm having a bad day. I'm having a moment or whatever, or it, it, it's 
seven years of them knowing one person and now it's it's still me but it's different it's more mature it's deeper it's whatever and um i remember after i was hit i was in the hospital and i was on dilaudid i did not want to take anything when i was in the hospital i really didn't uh but nurses were like you need to take this because you need to sleep you need to rest like your body needs to heal and i didn't want to take anything and my friend sunda she looked at me and she said i really hate that this is all happening to you because she was once a crack addict and so we became friends in that way and she said i i really hate that you've gone through this whole thing and now you're in a hospital bed and this is happening to you i'm like well maybe some of us are just meant to be light bearers and she looks at me and she said what i'm like the world is a really is a really dark place this is 2015, so Donald Trump was running for president. Um, I was like, maybe some of us are just meant to shine brighter, to make the world brighter, and the only issue is is that we burn out quicker. But, like, I, I think our personalities, I, I, I would say this with your personality, if you want to be a, a stand-up and want to bring light to the world, you know, the more you want to bring light to the world, the more it drives pulls light out of you unless you take care of yourself and i think that that's what's great about what you're doing right now is that you're trying to bring more light into the world without exhausting yourself and being exhausted is the worst possible feeling you can ever feel in the world it's exhausting what's and and, um, and the irony is that like i i'm here working 12 13 hour days seven days a week yeah Um, I and no, I get here at eight fifteen in the morning, eight thirty in the morning, and I go home around nine thirty at night. Um, and that's seven days a week. Um, but bless you. It doesn't feel like work. I, I'm not running tables. You know what I mean. I'm not yeah. selling TVs. I'm not selling houses. I'm not, you know, serving anybody else. I'm talking to people that want to talk. I'm talking to people that need to talk. You know, yeah. and I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I wasn't here and available. Yeah. And so that's the difference, you know, is and, and plus I'm not using drugs or alcohol to also make me feel exhausted. I would be exhausted anyway because, you know, like I said, I have insomnia. So what helps me sleep is overworking because if I don't work my ass off all day long, you know, then I'm going to be really, really, really restless at night. But mm-hmm. if I have like, you know, this is like going on a three plus hour podcast. Plus, I did an hour and a half podcast before this. Plus, I'm going to run two meetings after this and possibly do another podcast. So I'm going to probably hopefully because I've been awake for two days straight now, sleep like a baby tonight. And but that's just how I have to do it until we can get my pancreas fixed and until we can get like my sleep figured out. There's a lot of cliches in AA and it's, it works if you work it. Yeah. That that's it. It it works. If you work it, if you want to work the program, if you just follow the simple instructions, it's going to work. But if you're combat, if you're being resistant against it, it's not going to work because you're not going to be fully in. You're going to have your toe in the pool, but you didn't dive in yet. You know, and we can tell you all these tools, you know, we can give you all these tools all we want. But, like, if there's, like, a hammer on the ground, 
it's not going to put the nail on the wall unless you pick it up and fucking know how yeah. to do it. You know, that's the whole point is we can't do everything for you. We can give you the tools, but you got to learn how to use them on your own. You know, you yeah. only come to meetings for an hour a day if you come once a day. So what else are you do with those 23 hours, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of people that benefit, whether you're alcoholic, whether you're an addict, or whether you're what we call a normie, you know, where you just know how to do moderation. You know, normies are people that aren't addicts, they're not alcoholics. They can have a drink and they can stop at one. You know, that's what we call a normie in the program. It makes no sense to me, but I, it, it exists. It's like, how? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's normies. They throw me off all the time. But, <laughs> but thank you again for spending time and opening up and talking and getting raw and getting real. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate it, man. Have a nice day, man. I'll talk to you. You too, bud. See ya. Bye.